Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Sandro Mancuso, who is the author of the book, The Software Craftsman. He's also a speaker and the co-founder of Codurance, a software consultancy based in London. Sandro Mancuso, I'm delighted to have you join us on Maintainable. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me. So let's dive right into it. What do you believe are healthy characteristics of a maintainable software code base? So there are different ways of answering those questions. So one is like what you would expect a general answer. Let's say, for example, one that I like is tested in minutes, if not in seconds. So for example, if I go to a code base, the bare minimum that I would expect to consider maintainable is that I'm not scared to change. And how can I have this feeling of safety, if you like? Well, I can press a button, run all the tests, and see if it works. And I can rely on that test suite, right? So, so that is one of the things that I would consider maintainable for because it gives me the safety of changing. But then there is also the change themselves. I would expect a maintainable code base for the change to be localized. I go to a single place, I make that change in there, and I don't need to change anything else. So things like that. Another problem is to find the change. As soon as you, you need to, to maintain the code, you need to, to find the place that you need to add or change code. And that is related to how the software is, is designed, but mostly also the language that is used. I quite often find the language in the code is significantly different from the language used by the business. And that makes it very difficult to navigate through the code when you cannot find the nouns and verbs that you normally use while speaking to your whatever product owner, business analyst, whoever the person is that gives you the requirements. And then there is a, a more technical element to it is the relationship between the modules. And by modules, you can think about functions or classes or even components, right? So you can extrapolate at any level. So normally I like to talk about cohesion and coupling. So basically, like cohesion is like, are the, 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 the modules cohesive? So cohesion means like, whatever they do, is it cohesive? They is a single thing. They are all related to each other. If they provide more than one operations, they are tightly related to each other. And coupling is how those modules talk to each other. So a good balance means I would expect the modules to be cohesive, but also the coupling side, the two concepts, they are not binary. It's not like either it's cohesive or not cohesive or coupled or not coupled. So there are degrees of coupling, degrees of cohesion. So in coupling, there is a concept called fun-in and fun-out. So fun-in is the amount of modules that will talk to a single module. So they fun into the module, right? So multiple classes or functions talking to a single one. So when this one changes, it causes a ripple effect into the calling club. And the other one is the fun-out. So is one module talks to too many modules. So this one is also complicated because what you have is a module that is controlling flow where each step of the flow is too low level. So what you would like to do is to have like one module talking to one, maybe two, max three modules, and they themselves would talk to another one or two. So you distribute the complexity instead of having one module talking to too many. So those are more technical sides. And then on the more humane side, if you like, there is also the who's making the change, right? So for example, some people might be more familiar with programming paradigm, right? So if you are familiar with OO, functional might look a bit alien to you or vice versa. 
So the same with the tech stack, with the programming language and the familiarity with the business and all this kind of stuff. So there is this humane side of what you are used to and how much you know. One of the things you touched on there related to like how the architecture is designed and domain-driven design there in terms of the, the language used within the code base versus how the business talks about that information or what are some examples of how you would identify that there's a big disconnect? For example, you can look at the package structure or the namespaces, if you like, depending on which programming language you use. So namespace or package. Quite often, you see a lot of layers in that. You see service, repository, helpers, or view, controller, and things like that. And when you look at that package structure, how do you know what the system does or what it's about? Imagine that you need to, to make a change to a software, right? So the first thing you do, you want to look at it from above. You open the first layer of names. I'll, I'll mention package because I come from a Java background, but for everyone listening, if I say package, think about namespaces, yeah? So as soon as you open the first layer, if you just see technical terms or technical layers, how do you even know what the system is about or what it does? And then you need to open each one of those layers and start finding the, the classes. And even when you find the nouns, because that's another very interesting thing, right? So a lot of classes are named after nouns, which is cool because like, in a way, you know, let's say a class called product, let's say like a class called user. It's great. I know there is a user, but what is this user? And let's say there is another class called book or a book service, a user service. So I know that the system is about users and books, but who are these users? Are they authors? Are they buyers? Are they people reviewing? So what do we do with this book? So, so these kind of things, like the, the actual behavior of the system is very rarely seen in the package and the name space of the classes. So sometimes we can benefit from naming some classes after verbs, which like commands and things like that. So this initial structure and the name of the classes should guide you towards the behavior that the system provides to the external world. And very rarely we see that. I think one of the things that I've noticed in a lot of code bases that seem to have a big disconnect is if there's a pretty lengthy glossary that tries to translate it from one like what's in the code versus how the clients talk about it. And then you're spending the time with your clients or the product owners or users of that application trying to play translator all the time. And so that's, that's another downside of that. So how does your team define and talk about technical debt? So first, we, we are a consultancy company. So basically, our business is to go to our clients and, and help them to build software. Sometimes we build software for them. In our office, sometimes we build software for them with their teams working side by side. So... The definition of technical debt for me is like anything that the system is preventing the business to achieve. That's, I think, that how I'd like to define technical debt. And it's just with what is bothering now. If there is some code that is badly written, but we don't need to change, and it's doing what the business needs, I would question if it's technical debt. For me, technical debt is what's preventing us to move fast, preventing us to work in parallel preventing us to deploy often to production or slowing down the production of features or meeting deadlines. So that's for me, is technical debt. What do you believe developers often get wrong when they're talking about technical debt? You know, on that example, you just were talking a little bit about maybe less ideal code, maybe, but it works and it meets the need and there's no reason to need to go rewrite it necessarily. Are there other types of examples where you see developers getting that kind of mislabeling for something technical debt? I think that sometimes developers they don't like certain things in the code base and they will call it technical debt. Or they are bored building some features and they want to do a lot of refactoring and re-engineering. And they also, they say that is very important. 
A lot of developers don't understand that technical debt is what is preventing the business to move forward. I think that they don't associate technical debt to actually business. They associate far more to what they are doing and the difficulties of navigating the code than actually a business. I even like to say that, for example, every technical problem is a business problem. And companies that fail to understand that, they, they are missing the point. Software will never be strategic for them. They will never benefit fully from building software if they don't understand that technical problems are business problems. And I think that developers fail to make this connection as well. It's not only from the business to technology, but also technology to business. Have you noticed any patterns amongst teams or processes that might contribute to a code base maybe amassing too much technical debt? Is it just that disconnect or is it just... The disconnect is a big source of it, but it takes many different forms as well. So, for example, a very common one is the structure of the team, right? So, in a lot of organizations, even the ones that say that they are using agile methodologies, quite often what you see is, let's say that they have some product owner that is more a popular term in the agile world. The product owner is not part of the team, or at least they don't see themselves as part of the team. So there is clear a group of people defining requirements and creating roadmaps and milestones for the product. And there's a lot of work that goes into product design that is completely hidden from the, the technology. For example, I believe that most companies now are using some sort of agile methodology. But if you really think deeply of how they are doing that, the intersection between business and technology is just the top items of the backlog. And I'm, of course, I'm not talking about the extremes. There are some companies that are very tight where the technology and business work like a single team, very strong, and some companies are completely detached. But I'm talking about the, the average company that we see, right? So there's a group of product owners come up with a product backlog, milestones and stuff, and then they would prioritize their items, the priorities at the top, and that's when developers come in. They start looking at the top of the backlog, but they don't have visibility of the whole. And because they are working in a few small iterations, what happens is the developers are always focusing on top items of the backlog, get them fast in the next iteration, move on to the next iteration. The business is getting the feedback from development. As we are finishing user stories and stuff like that, the business is getting that feedback and reprioritizing the backlog and the product design. But we are not being given the same opportunity to readjust our system as they reprioritize the thing. So this is one side of the problem. Another problem that I see is that I don't think that it's possible to completely avoid technical debt, right? So because we are always changing and, and we should, we should react fast and change and try and see if it works. And if it doesn't, we change again. So because of this way of working, which I love about Agile, it's almost impossible not to completely prevent legacy. But what we fail to do as developers is, first of all, to express the value of certain refactorings or, or changes in your code. So for example, we want to make our code better because we want you to fix some technical debt, but we cannot express the business value of those changes. Another thing is that sometimes we fail to understand the different changes have different impacts. So some changes in certain areas are far more valuable than others. And we also fail to express that. Another thing that I, I feel is that a lot of technical people, like developers would go to the business, oh, everything is, is messed up and we need to refactor, we need to... So the business doesn't understand. What, what does it even mean, this kind of refactoring? So are you saying that I gave you some tasks, you created a mess, and now you are asking me to fix the mess that you created in the first place? 
if you want to, to convince business that we need to, to make some technical improvements, we need to put ourselves in their position and see how they would feel if you were saying what we are saying. So we need to find a better way. So we need to provide to them a strategy as well. So it's not like a random change. So say, I want to do refactoring. Refactoring where? Related to what? Which kind of business feature? Which kind of business impact that's going to have? And I think that we fail a lot in that. So we cannot express ourselves. And they will say, no, <laughs> just do another feature. Right? Yeah, that seems to be a pretty common characteristic of hearing about different stories of how code bases evolve. And, and then there becomes this kind of like disconnect between the stakeholders and the developers and developers bringing up concerns or eventually giving up on even asking to improve things because they've heard no too many times. But I think sometimes they're not thinking about how they're framing those issues in the first place. Trying to frame things in a positive, business-focused approach, like this is going to help us down the road. We're on board with all these other things you want to do that we just really need to take care of this thing. It's a positive thing. We're getting the chance to revisit some of this, not a... And also, like, you can try to explain the problem that you're trying to solve. So, for example, let's, let's say that you have a business that would love to deploy more often. And then you ask the, the business, are you happy with the amount of deployments that we have per year? Let's say that we are deploying three, four times a year. If you went to them and said, like, what if we could deploy every two weeks? Or what if we could deploy every week? Or what if we even have multiple deployments a day? Is it something that you would be interested? How many bugs we have in production? How much time are we spending in rework? How much stuff is said that is done goes through the, the pipe and then gets back to us because we need to fix something? So how often is that happening? Would you like to reduce that? So you can start talking to them about business value and then start mapping the changes to those kind of things, to efficiency and producing features and stuff. Working in parallel, for example, how hard it is in larger applications where you have a group of product owners and they need to have a kind of a portfolio management to try to figure out what to prioritize and what they can give to different teams. And having all those teams step on each other's toes and then having to freeze. So why are you still doing that? So maybe if you could go to them, so like, what if you could have people working in parallel without stepping each other's toes? And as they finish whatever they're doing, goes straight to production. Would you like to reduce all the, to remove all the manual steps for deployment and testing? So then you have an argument to start talking about refactoring, redesign, re-architecture and everything else. You're touching on a lot of really good points here and a lot of really helpful, tangible examples of scenarios that I think a lot of developers probably could relate to in their own environment, for sure. Given that you also work in the software consultancy world, as, as do I, is it safe to assume that you've traveled into many other teams' code bases? What types of scenarios does your team at Coderance get called in to assist on most often? Well, normally, like the work that is more common to us, <laughs> I don't even know if I like to say that, but we do a lot of it, is modernizing systems. Normally, there are organizations that invest a lot on software, and they are mature enough to understand the technical problems they have. Quite often, they invested also in agile processes. So that's where they felt the pain first. They felt that the process was inefficient. So they brought some agile processes into play, or even lean processes. So we, we find a mix of Kanban and Scrum. So we find a, lean of, a mix of lean and agile in organizations. And what those methodologies do is to expose problems very quickly, right? So both Lean and Agile will very quickly start exposing problems to everyone in a regular basis. 
And at some point, they get mature enough to understand that they haven't done much on the technical side. So then companies like ours would come in and say like, okay, we will need to do something with your system and this, the technical skills of your people as well, so that you start benefiting from the promises of Agile and Lean, so that you can have proper continuous delivery, for example. As a guest in other people's code bases, if there's some consultants out there listening, what advice can you offer to developers on how to be a good guest in another team's code base? When you come in as an external, there are different stakeholders, right? So you have the devs themselves, and you also have like the business, like the product owners, and whoever else you interact with, because each company has a very different way to structure themselves. Like some of them have separate QA teams or production services and stuff like that. So I think that the advice I give from external people is like, you're there to help. You're not there to complain. For me, it starts there. The reason that they're calling you is because they have a problem. So, so there's no point for you to be upset or annoyed or turn your nose. Like That's why you are there, to help them, to take them in a journey and make things better. I also, well, and this is a general advice for any developer I, I would give, almost for any professional, to be fair, but like, is the attitudes towards systems that are not well written, which is the vast majority of that, right? And we contribute to them as ourselves. I call it a building a wall, a professional wall. So imagine uh, professionals like doctors, psychologists, lawyers. They deal with problems every single day. Problems that are a billion times worse than ours. They're talking with lies, people sick, right? Those people, this is their day-to-day job, is to deal with extremely complex problems. And they need to build this wall, this professional wall, that while they are dealing with their patients or clients, they are professionals. They will take them on a journey. By the end of the day, they go home and sleep. They don't let that affect them personally. That doesn't mean that they don't care. This is how they care, because they need to be fresh next day to look things from a distance, to have this critical distance and say like, this is the situation. Instead of me start complaining and adding to the problem, what can I do with this? With the code base, with difficult characters that you find in any organization or the politics and everything else, you always need to look from outside, create this critical distance and never let that affect you, regardless if you are a consultant or a permanent employee. The attitude should be the same for me. Really good suggestions there. Out of curiosity, just from someone that also runs a consultancy, I'm assuming that all of your developers that you've hired show up having a lot of experience already being consultants necessarily. Do you internally talk about these types of discussions quite a bit when you're onboarding people and training? We do, but to be fair, it's not easy to find consultants. What you have, you find a lot of talented developers, but them becoming consultants is a separate skill. It's almost an orthogonal skill in a way, right? So in our business, it's essential to have both. But for example, you have some some developers that are not exactly very talented, but they are great with people. They are great to ask the right questions, helping people to collaborate or get to the point quickly. They are naturally good consultants and they make up for not being so technically brilliant. Some of the technical ones that are very good, if they don't have a good people skills and if they cannot navigate well in a social environment like a company, they will never work well in a consultancy, regardless of how good they are. 
So answering your question, so what we do is when we hire more senior people in our company, we need both the, the technical skills and consultants. The younger ones, we take the ones that are good technically and we try to mentor them as they move on. But it's not as easy skills. So some of them succeed and become great consultants, other than fail and leave the company. They just cannot take the pressure. Some people would be better off in a product company. Yeah, exactly. And they have a team that is stable, always working on the same area of the system. There's always someone feeding them the requirements. So they just need to master that technology stock, that area of the business. And the company can really benefit from their skills in one area. They can be a specialist and be very well utilized. As a consultant, you never know what the next job is. When exactly in, say, a software code base's lifecycle, does it become legacy? To be fair, there is a lot of people that say, oh, it becomes legacy as soon as you rotate and stuff like that. So I really don't like this kind of self-forced modesty. Oh, I'm not good enough. And everything I write one minute later is legacy. I think there is a bit, I, I don't know. I don't like saying that. So I think that it becomes legacy as soon as it starts getting in my way, which may be never, right? So if I wrote something that is very specific requirement, like a system is a very complex thing, right? So there are... Parts that are always changing and parts that you write once and as soon as you get that right, they will never change again, ever. Most of the code base, they will have like 20% of the code base that is in a constant evolution and there is almost 80% that is dormant. So would I call that 80% dormant legacy? I'm not sure I would. It would become legacy as soon as I need to touch that area of the system and for whatever reason, the area of the system is not allowing me or the business to move. But otherwise, no, if there is making the change easy in that area and rarely evolving, for me, it's just fine. It's been an interesting thing talking with different people about technical debt, legacy code, and how I feel like these phrases sometimes make those underlying thread that I've, I personally believe that these get thrown around a little too often and maybe not often a way to describe someone else's code <laughs> or that was done before, or, or there's nobody here that remembers how it was built the way it, and why it was built the way it was. And so there's the lack of the story or it's outdated on some versions of something, but if it's still running successfully out there and it's not causing any problems for anyone, then neither of those phrases necessarily need to be labeled on that, I suppose. It's becoming very cheap to say, oh, that's technical debt, right? Became banal, right? And so you just throw those terms in. And I don't think that it's as simple as that. A little bit of a scapegoat. Yeah, indeed. We'll be back with my interview with Sandro in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I want to thank you for listening to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're finding these discussions valuable, please consider sharing it amongst your peers and writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. And now back to our interview with Sandro Mancuso. So a few years ago, you wrote an article called A Case for Outside-In Development, which you outlined how that a common pattern in software development has been to focus on the domain model and say backend business logic and essentially focusing on the front end later, like to the user interface. You're suggesting that there could be a good argument for starting on the front end first. And I believe you later referred to that as interaction-driven design or IDD. And I also think you're writing a book on this topic. So maybe you could provide our audience with a kind of a high-level introduction to this. Yes, I'm expanding on that on, on a book. I gave a few talks on that recently as well. So there is one called Interaction with Human Design and there is another one it's called A Case for Outside In. So they kind of expand on the topic and stuff, but now I'm writing a proper book. So I have a love and hate relationship with domain-driven design. I studied domain-driven design since the first book came about in 2004 by Eric Evans 
And since then, I grew this love and hate relationship with it. It's not with the methodology itself. It's not with DDG. There's very little wrong with the actual methodologies or techniques or framework. It's mostly how they are used. The premise that I have is there's no point in having a backend if there's no frontend. There's no point in having a service if no one is consuming it. So that's to start with. Another thing is what I don't like is what I call speculative design. Developers love to design, right? So it's, it's awesome just to go and write in code and create some abstractions and stuff like that. So we go straight to the domain model. That's the most common approach today is going to the domain model. When I started, it was different. We would go for the data model first. We would model the database and then from the database, extract the entities and then the business logic and then the UI. Time went by and then, so now we focus on the domain model. And the premise is similar to hexagonal architecture. We will create our domain model in the middle and then the persistence and the UI is just a detail of implementation. What is really valuable is the core. So this is exactly this, this premise that I'm questioning nowadays, because there is a lot of speculation. So if you're building a lot of code, but you don't know exactly how this code is going to be used, you need to speculate. How do you even define the public interface of a class or the signature of a function if you have no clue who is calling it? You need just to say, I think it's going to be used this way. And you keep doing that a lot in the core of your system. And all of a sudden, at some point, you actually need to have a, an API or a front end to use that domain. But quite often, it, it has parts of what you need, but not everything. A very common problem, mobile developers, backend developers. Very common problem. The backend developers go there and force the APIs up. So like, we create this domain model, that's your APIs, and the mobile developers like, but do I need to call 10 APIs to get what I want? Or, well, I'm going to call one API, but got this blob of data and then have to parse all of that myself. So it's never right. While the backend would have absolutely no reason whatsoever to exist if the mobile client didn't exist or the web client. You have this, a lot of speculation and, and a lot of people spending time modeling that domain model. And now it became so precious to them that as soon as there are different requirements coming from outside, they don't want to change that. They create layers of adapters. So why are we creating this, this accidental complexity? So this is the premise that I'm rejecting. So I think that, in fact, we should analyze how we're going to interact with the system, right? So if you're providing a system, it's because someone outside wants behavior from us. And that's where I would start from. Is it a mobile? Is it another system? Is it through APIs? It's, so I would start from there. Well, understand what the external world wants from my system and design that interface. Say, if you want that from me, I need this data and I'm going to return to you this kind of data. Is that good for you? And once we have that, then we start coming inside from the outside to the inside. A lot of people would ask me, wouldn't you create some naive domain models? Wouldn't your system to be too specific? Well, there are many different ways to use a counter argument in here. One is if I just have one request to a domain area, why it would be more, more complex than that? If I just have one call, why do I need to have something that is bulletproof or like it might change if you never change? Because the alternative is to try to make something extremely generic and pay the price up front that something might change somewhere, which I don't know. So I make it everything complex. So, so that's one argument. Another argument is like test-driven development. How do we normally test drive code, regardless if it's classicist or outside in? Either approach will be exactly the same. You start with a very small test. 
Let me put an example in there. If I call this thing with this data, I expect this data out. And you go there in the production code, hard code the result. First test done. Next test, you start triangulating. You pass a different example. And then what you need to do, your code, you need to be a little bit more generic to satisfy two cases. And you, and you go for the third. And as you are adding more tests, your tests become more specific, your code becomes more generic. For me, growing a domain model is exactly the same. If I have just one API towards a domain area, my code in that domain area will be extremely specific for that API. But as I add more APIs into that domain area, my domain, my domain model will need to become a little bit more generic to satisfy more APIs. So then you'll never have more than you really need. And your system will do just enough to satisfy the external need. And that's, that's the whole premise of outside design. Sorry, very long answer to your question. I appreciate the introduction there, sort of having some flashbacks to projects where recently the team's been working on where our client had a backend team working on an API while we're working on a front end and they're like, it's all ready for you. And then we start using it. And it's like, did you look at the, any of the wireframes that we talked to? Did, did you see any of this? And they're like, what does it matter? And you're just like, well, you have to make a lot of changes, I think. Or the interface needs to completely change because are we doing the work now? Do we have to calculate this stuff? Or also remember the, the older era of I worked at a company and the, my boss was working on a project and said, okay, you're going to build out this interface now. The database is done. Like that part, like the hard part's done. And I was like, how many alter table things did we have to make the process just to integrate with that? So I think you make some good compelling arguments there. Yeah, you mentioned wireframes. For example, I love them, right? Because wireframes, like you still allow the UI to change in terms of layout, in terms of like how you're going to style the thing. But what you define in a wireframe is every single step, like every button click, every link, that's a need from the external world. So you can start from there, right? So if you know each click is a need from the external world, you can discuss that. So as soon as the user makes a click, what is the user expecting? What do we need as a backend uh, from the user in order to perform that action for her? Right, so so that's where the discussion should start. You've also spoken and written a lot about how important it is for a software developer to hone and continue to hone their craft. Why do you believe this is so important? Say outside of coding each and every workday, what are ways that a developer could continue to invest in their craft? So there are many different ways, and it depends on which areas they want to evolve. For example, on the coding side, I love doing katas. I do katas all the time. So that's how I sharpen my speed on the keyboard. So that's how I memorize all my shortcuts. And that's how I try many different libraries and languages and stuff like that. So I always have a small problem that I need to... In order for me to study and do something, I need to have something to solve. So katas are small problems that you can use for that purpose. So I do sometimes the same katas over and over again, each time in a completely different way. So that's how I get my language and speed on the keyboard, mostly speed on the keyboard, sharpened. But for example, design is, is something that is very difficult to practice. So design for me, there are two sides. There is a theoretical side and there is a practical side. I don't think that you can have one without the other. I don't think you can design software well just writing code. You need theory behind that. And the problem with software design is that there's tons of knowledge out there decades of knowledge, but it's always spread. There's not a single book you go, you need to read tons of different things. So I'm always reading books as well. So all the books that I read are in Goodreads, so I keep it public in there so people can go and see what I'm reading and what I'm doing. But I do a lot of reading. 
and always have a pet project or a kata going on in there as well. And to be fair, like being a consultant also helps a lot because we are constantly moving from one client to another. You're seeing different projects. And so this helps a lot as well. Time for just a few last questions. Typically, I would kind of ask people about a book that they most often recommend to software developers. Is there one maybe in the last six to 12 months that you've found yourself being really impressed with that you would recommend to other software developers to check out? There are a few things in there, but I wouldn't say that whatever I read in the last six to 12 months are exactly my favorite books, are just what I'm interested at the moment, right? So they are slightly different uh, things. But recently, what I've been reading a lot is actually product design. I guess that after more than two decades in the industry, I have a good grasp of software design. But what I'm lacking is product design. So if you want to bridge this gap between technology and business, I need to understand more how you design a product so that I can fit in software design. And that's the, what the book is about in a way. It's, it's like taking the phases because software product design has loads of different methodologies to support that. So what I'm trying to do is to put software design methodologies and agile methodologies within product design. That's what I'm being reading about. A lot of business model canvas, there is value proposition canvas. There are loads of different books, even Agile Project Management by uh, Jim Highsmith as well, that I went back to. There is a book from 2009. There is how to, to run digital products in general. There is a, a very interesting book that I read by Alan Kelly. It's called No Projects. I found it fascinating because we, we are used to run software as projects, but a project approach is not suitable for a long-term software product because a project by nature, it starts and ends. It has a budget. It has a deadline. While a software product is in continuous evolution. So as soon as you have a project and you set deadlines and budgets and stuff, the means will justify the end. And that's when you start cutting corners as long as... So that's why some of the conflicts arise between business and development because the business is focused on finishing the project while we are looking at a product that is continuously evolving. So there is a, a massive mismatch in that. So those are things that are fascinating I've been reading a lot about recently so that I can write a new book. But the, my favorite books are very different from that. We don't work with a lot of startups ourselves, but when companies come our way to talk about building out a product, I'm like, what is your budget? And they're thinking, well, till release. And I'm like, what about the rest of its life. And they're like, well, we'll figure it out when we get there. And I'm like, you need to figure that part of the process out. It's not going to, I get that you want to like see if there's a market fit here, but there's, there's a little bit more to this budget conversation than just getting it out the door. Exactly. Because the no projects will immediately lead us to the no budget, where you talk about continuous cost instead of having a fixed budget, which is a very different way of looking at these as well. Just kind of riffing on this topic a little bit, have you, in your experience, seen other industries or other types of goods or service offerings where it is kind of this continuous cost? That's because I think that's often quite a thing that most people can kind of understand. Well, it's a project. There's like, you want to build a house, you want to get something custom done, a new deck for your house, like whatever. It's just like, there's a scope, there's a sense of closure, but other good tangible examples of things that you just keep investing in outside of like your mortgage and your rent and the cost of feeding yourself, you know? Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, manufacturing has a little bit of that because, of course, if you think about the final, like, producing a chair or a car, of course, it starts and ends. But the process of a continuous evolution of the production line every year, readjusting the production line to produce the new model, 
the new features of the car and stuff like that. So that's a continuous investment, right? So the product has a shorter lifespan, but the production line doesn't. It's not like just like a one-off run of something. You're continuing to build those cars. If you take the production line as your product, then you have something similar, not the car itself. Because at the end of the day, like if you think about a software product is a way to enable a business. You can think about a software product as the production line. We are creating, we are generating revenues or saving costs or enabling a business to succeed in, through the software, through the continuous evolution of the software. The same way a production line, you do that for a car manufacturer. That just got my uh, my brains kind of firing on a few different thoughts there. Let's go reflect on that a little bit and how I even framed some of those conversations. I had to make that up on spot as well. So that's the first time that I use this, this analogy. It's, it's good. All right. And where can people find and learn more about you online? Well, Twitter probably is the best place. So I'm at Sandro Mancuso. And my email, direct email, if people want to contact me, sandro at cogirance.com. So those are the two best ways for finding me. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for talking shop with us on Maintainable, Sandro. Well, so it's a pleasure for me, Robbie. And so thank you for inviting me. <laughs>